You're listening to an ACA podcast. Great. Well, I might um, get started while we're waiting for people to jump on, um, just doing a little introductory preamble, and then we'll be straight into the artist talks. So uh, as we always do, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the custodians of the land on which the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art is situated and from which I'm joining you today. I extend my respect, respects to ancestors, elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people who are joining us for this session. To all of you, thank you for joining this second in a series of artist talks for ACA's summer exhibition program, Who's Afraid of Public Space? I'm honoured to be joined this afternoon by Michael Candy, Simona Castricum, Callum Morton and Huang Tran Nguyen. My name is Miriam Kelly and I'm a senior curator at APCA and co-curator of this exhibition with my colleagues Max Delaney and Annika Christensen with the support of our esteemed curatorial advisory group. Who's Afraid of Public Space is a multifaceted project. It includes exhibitions, events and programs that explore the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space and the character and composition of public life. Who's Afraid of Public Space is organised according to a dispersed, distributed structure. So in addition to the exhibition and events at APCA, the project also extends across Melbourne. We have a series of satellite exhibitions that have been developed by or in collaboration with our cultural partners, and they include Abbotsford Convent, Arts Project Australia, Black Dot Gallery, Bus Projects, City of Melbourne, Footscray Community Arts, Moreland City Council and Testing Grounds. There are also a number of off-site projects that ACA has commissioned or included existing works of that are online and in the wider public realm, which form a key part of Who's Afraid of Public Space. And you can find out more about the whole program via the map and extensive project listings on the ACA website at ACA.Melbourne. Each of the artists who join us today have a rich and engaged and varied approach to the public realm. Their works have been included in Who's Afraid of Public Space, uh, and they range from documentation projects of city uh, streets to pop music videos and theatrical responses to surveillance, as well as subversive public karaoke events. The projects we'll hear about today are either accessible in public or online now, or take place over the course of Who's Afraid of Public Space, which is on uh, until March 20 this year. You can also see some of these works or references to the artist projects at ACA in the gallery dedicated to a wide array of projects that takes place off-site, which we've called the project space or the hoarding. I'll introduce each of our speakers who will give short presentations of around 10 minutes and then we'll close with questions. So please add your questions to the chat or the Q&A uh, over the course of the whole program and we'll get to them uh, as we wrap up. So to start, I'd like to introduce Michael Candy, who's a newly Melbourne-based artist, moving here from Brisbane late last year. Michael Candy is interested in the liminal realm between technology and the physical world. He works with a variety of methodologies and media, including robotics, video, hardware, uh, and hacking. Uh, and Michael's projects uh, and installations are often social experiments or ecological in interventions in public space. Uh, Michael has been involved in many national and international exhibitions, including notably as part of the Ars Electronica Festival in Austria and the Kathmandu Triennial in Nepal, as well as major exhibitions such as those held at the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane Quarter. 
Um, originally presented as part of Rising in 2021, um, Michael Candy's Persistence of Vision takes the form of a discrete AI-enabled interactive installation along Bryan Lane in Melbourne in uh, the CBD. So, Michael, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your project and uh, to see some of the documentation. Thank you. Just unmute. Um, that was a lovely introduction. Thanks. I, I guess I'll start with the screen share and sort of maybe talk through how this idea came uh, to be. So um, I'll share the screen. Uh, this video we're about to watch is part of the initial pitch. So Rising and Melbourne City Council reached out to me to produce this work. Um, and it was, it was a really cool experience because they were very trusting and they just said, we have this lane on way, like, what would you do? Like, we're not necessarily saying, yes, we'll commission this work, but like, show us what you're doing this lane way. And this was kind of, um, I did a bit of a back and forth, thought about a few set, like several different ideas. And then um, this kind of just fell into place. Like it, it just made a lot of sense to like have, you guys were currently in lockdown and like, you know, a lot has changed over the last few years with like the way cities operate with technology. And so I thought instead of having like um, this surveillance system that's kind of passive, uh, what about making it something that's much more um, interactive and, and obvious? Um, and I was quite surprised the response that that this project got uh, went ahead because <laughs> it is it is quite a critical work, but it is also like uh, I think its playful uh, nature kind of helps it uh, ease this discussion into you know uh, the experience. So. Um, yeah, this this video here is of a prototype unit, which was just completely remotely operated, uh, just used a flashlight, everything very simple, but like the aesthetic was kind of uh, beginning to develop of this like camera housing and um, really referencing, you know, CCTV uh, installations that are in public space. So um, yeah, and the video does a little bit of the kind of uh, emotive nature that we had to develop for this work so that it could scan as well as detect and like have these different modes. Um, I'll maybe skip to the, um, so this is the design development document, um, which was still very early stages. There wasn't really a clear, uh, system in place yet with what we were going to use. So um, this was re definitely referencing a lot of the developments of the physical prototype in that video. Um, and then looking into components. So um, this work actually does use artificial intelligence to identify people, which is like, as far as I'm concerned, pretty cutting edge, uh, but it, it it's fascinating how quickly this technology bleeds into systems that already exist and um, begins to surround us in these kind of smart cities or surveillance states, depending on which terminology you'd prefer. And so um, part of this document was looking at the site, the quantity and like um, the, the final installation actually has 10 units which communicate on a network so that each camera that detects you can alert the next camera and pass you between the lights. So trying to create this theatrical um, experience, like uh, theater lighting that might pass you between um, 
the the uh, theater lights, like as you enter the stage of this laneway um, and walk through it. And the interesting thing is, like I've spent <laughs> a lot of time on that side and seeing how people, some people completely don't notice that anything is even like shining on them person to person, but then other people kind of stay and interact or even just turn around and take an alternative route because it seems a bit too um, maybe intense having all these cameras kind of shining down the laneway. Um, from what I can tell, despite uh, what I expected, this site hasn't actually changed much in the sort of, um, there's still like new graffiti in the laneway, like that it still has, I haven't changed like made this a, a more surveilled site like the cameras all the monitoring is actually just the AI gets to see it so no one's actually watching these cameras um here might be a little more information this is the um so this is the maintenance guide so this was handed over to council to sort of guide them through uh unit numbers layout and um, how to actually you know maybe problem solve some of the things so it's very intense sorry there's a really noisy street here uh th there's a central hub which contains a router system and everything is online so they can actually have this network between each other um there's the 10 units these are some of the patterns i was i'll show you some video of that in a sec but um the cases themselves had to be custom fabricated. So there are cameras that can sort of pan and tilt, um, but not really ones that can do the movements as quickly and as smoothly as these. Um, and so it's using some really gnarly servos to actually move and control the movements, as well as um, we had to fit a whole lot of tech inside there. Um, including like uh, an NVIDIA accelerated GP, like a, a, basically a graphics computer for processing all the image data um, to be able to detect people at a higher frame rate than some of the smaller single board, single board computers. Um, it also used like lens vectoring technology, which kind of focuses the beam. So once you're spotted, the beam actually hones in on you and sort of lets you know that you've been detected. Um, so, um, so I think this, this video is quite a good. So this is it from above, which looks really similar to the um, initial test and further in the video, um, there's some tracking. So that's the light actually keeping the beam on me and then passing it to the next. Um, and just lastly, I'll finish on this video, which I think is part of the installation at ACA. So um, the other thing about this work was that it was initially designed to be up for two weeks during the Rising Festival, and it's now been seven months. So it kind of keeps getting handed over and passed along and is slowly like becoming a part of the city's infrastructure, I feel, but um, it definitely is struggling with some of the, like it's repeated these movements 
thousands of times now. And um, we did our best to design a system that was very sealed and close to the elements. Um, and it's done pretty well considering, but um, there is some repairs required. So um, I'd say if you want to see this work, probably later next week is a good time. I'll be doing some maintenance early in the week um, to hopefully get everything up to speed. So if you end up in Chinatown to take a walkthrough, um, probably finish on that. Amazing. Thanks so much, Michael. Um, what time of day is best? Obviously, it looks like um, later in the evening uh, or at least after dusk. Uh, the work actually activates from 4.30. So there's a homing procedure, all the cameras calibrate, um, and then they'll start tracking you. So like there will be daylight, but you'll be able to see there. It's actually quite a bright beam. So you can actually experience it in the late afternoon sun, which is quite cool. I, I kind of wanted it to happen just before people went home from work, you know, so they could just take a stroll through and experience it as well if, they, if they're not in the city at night. That's fantastic. It's such a, um, an interesting discussion. I'm not sure if you've had this with other of your works about the, the desire to keep them on display for a longer period of time. Is that something you've encountered with previous works? Um, well, the, the thing is like making these interactive or like, you know, moving sculptures, I always try and create physical work that you can experience like um, and share space with. Um, there have been a few video works I've done, which are just like kind of a relief for me because creating video work uh, is of, you know, robotic or created sculptures, but they only have to exist in that time that I'm filming them. So I can cut a lot of corners, but when things have to exist in the real world, like there's just so many challenges and like so many problems can arise. Um, and that's why, again, I say like this, this work does, like I was there, uh, I did an inspection last week and like, I think last maintenance was like in December and like already there's cobwebs all over one of the cameras and I can't see properly. And like just all these little things you don't really um, expect. So it's it's challenging, but it's also like really exciting. I don't, I, I think this work, I've done a lot of work that's sort of, uh, a very of a very broad dialogue but I feel like this work is very core to my current trajectory and the dialogue I'd like to have with future pieces so I'm really stoked that it's like living on in you know even though it's a little beat up it's still kicking yeah fantastic thanks so much we might continue the conversation once we've heard from everyone. I feel like there's probably some really interesting synergies around working in the public realm that we can um, touch on with each of you. Simona, we might um, pass on to you now. Um, Simona is a multidisciplinary creative and educator working at the intersection of music and architecture. Simona is also a doctoral candidate in architecture at the University of Melbourne. Within her practice, Simona reflects on queer, trans and gender non-conforming experiences of design, public space and civic life. As an author and an advocate, Simona has written and consulted widely on issues of visibility, safety and inclusion in public space. And Simona has also been creating music since the late 1990s, uh, having released three acclaimed albums, as well as running the independent record label Trans Brunswick Express. 
Um, Simona's dynamic music videos are on display at ACCA in the project space, The Hoarding, uh, and Simona's written material on experiences of public space are also accessible via the ACCA website. Simona, it's a great pleasure to have you today. We look forward to hearing um, about your practice. Thank you. Thanks, Miriam. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, coming to you from, uh, from Wurundjeri country on Kulin Nation um, and respects to um, elders past, present and emerging out there who, who are, are tuning in online. Uh, yeah, I, um, yeah, well, I'll start to share my screen, I guess. Um, so, um, I, you know, with my practice, I guess, you know, my PhD is called what if, sort of poses the question, and it's a rhetorical question of what if safety becomes permanent, um, and it's a, it's a creative practice PhD that utilises architecture and music, I guess, as this world-building multidisciplinary practice, um, and together they work as methodologies that present and analyse my own trans narrative and provide research outcomes through the media of performance, of songwriting, and um, and of written dissertation, um, but it really focuses on this idea of of transing. Um, now, transing, I guess, is you know like queering. I think has been a bit of a buzzword in architecture and design for a little while, and I think you know transing is is something that's sort of like established since the, the you know, the late 2000s. But, um, you know, it's sort of defined, I guess, as like a practice that takes place within as well as across or between gendered spaces uh, or otherwise a negotiation through the way things are, uh, changing ourselves through a constant study of what we could be. So this idea, I guess, of, uh, of futurity, this idea of, of possibilities of um, you know, of, of potentiality is, is really important. And I think it's really important uh, in a sense, not only for uh, my experience of being trans, but also like my experience of, of uh, in architecture and design, but also as a, you know, in, in, in music, you know, in music is very much about building worlds for me. So the essence of transing is change or infinite possibility. This negotiation transition is not a linear process, rather an ongoing pursuit of self. And transing might be understood specifically as the practice to create spaces of safety, belonging and permanence for gender diversity to flourish. So transing architecture for me require, requires this negotiation with a dominant cis-normative paradigm to present liminal spaces and futures in civic life beyond the oppressive control of the gender binary. And I, th I think that's something I really want to ram home is that that's, that's it's a pretty oppressive thing to live within the cis world, you know, or um, as I was calling it on New Year's Day as I was running around a few festivals, you know, the cis pit. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really about building good relationships with, with cis people. You know, I want, I want good relationships with cis people, absolutely. But the, within the context of architecture, I guess, like the urban infill presents these sites of, of opportunity upon the thresholds of risk and safety, somewhere between panic and desire, 
edge conditions are sites for this negotiation, uh, which is certainly my experience through, through music and clubbing, I think, you know, and also in architecture in the city. And so as I move in and out of visibility for my own safety, my formative experiences of public space inform my tactics and strategies to mitigate risks posed by the hostility of urban this normative paradigm, but it's also a way that I create space as well. Um, you know, this paradigm acts to govern and administer normativity, to surveil and punish gender nonconformity. But within that, we do find our own futures and create our own futures. So meanwhile, the ongoing public debate on trans subjects serves only to keep trans lives, bodies and identities as sanctioned targets of ongoing harm. But I guess what I'm rather than sort of to sort of focus on the academia or to focus on the politics, I guess what I've been trying to go about in my practice is this idea that a five minute pop song can communicate really complex ideas in ways that an 80,000 word academic thesis cannot. So I'm rejecting the academy and I'm really leaning into the artwork. Um, so for who's afraid of public space, there's you know, music videos, um, you know, that I've, that I've presented that sort of present music as a site of transing through lived experience, through these ideas of relationship, community, of resistance and of celebration. Um, because the built environment organises identity and just something from Foucault, like the capacity for the city to regulate gendered categorization is akin to Michael Foucault's theorization of cells and places and ranks as elements of urban space, uh, you know, uh, each within the capacity to mark places, indicate values as they guarantee the obedience for individuals. And uh, I guess, you know, it's this space that I really want to celebrate. This is the edge condition. This is what happens when we pour out of the club. This is what happens when we pour into the club. You know, these are the laneways that, you know, for the last 40 years have, have been the interface of the underground queer Melbourne from Razor to Tasty to um, Honky Tonks or to Hugs and Kisses or wherever, like this is sort of where the magic happens, you know, and then we go down to the basement or whatever. So my videos are really about sort of like what is this experience and what's it like to get here and what are the things that we need to celebrate in order to get here. So, you know, the first video in the exhibition is the video for, um, for Nights Don't Breathe um, and... Um, yeah, I'm just going to share my screen again and let's see what we can find. <laughs> yeah, so this is the video for Nights Don't Breathe. Um, you know, and it's really just me sort of like pirouetting, I guess, through the middle of public space. The reason why I did this video was because I, I was I was in New York. I was on a subway and I got I got attacked on the subway and I didn't know what to do. I went home that night and I was like, what do I do? I, I wanted to stay at home. And the next day I just went out and just like literally just, you know, put my, I, I got out my camera and sort of held these selfies, I guess, of me, you know, in the middle of public space um, as a way of reclaiming public space of, of being in the middle of, um, of downtown New York or being in the middle of Melbourne or, you know, the middle of, uh, you know, like a whole lot of, a whole lot of different spaces. 
and just oops and just sort of put all of these things together it was it was it wasn't even a video that I sort of planned or anything it was just literally like an exercise to reclaim my own centrality in public space and I think like this part of the video is really important because like I think it's sort of like part of the fear that I think I experience and the, the chorus of this song is like fear lose and in and nights don't breathe is, is really about this idea about being chased or being surveilled or being policed and having my body being constantly policed. And so there's this sense of hypervigilance that I'm trying to get across here, which I think this video does really well. Another piece um, I want to share, I think, too, is, I guess, um, this video, which is about community and which is about the idea of, like, the, the house party, uh, which is sort of like uh, these, are, these are places that we create ourselves. It's like this is a video called No Allegiance. So the, the house parties that we create ourselves are almost like these sort of like utopian little, little um, you know, little places that we, you know, we wish we could have at the club or we wish that we could have in the city. But um, it's quite difficult to do that. We don't really have the resources or we don't have the access to, you know, the infrastructure to kind of do that. So, um, you know, I feel like in the last 10 years, for instance, that has changed, you know, um, like for trans spaces to actually be um, created within um, certain nightclubs like Hugs and Kisses or like Miscellanea as they're being done at the moment you know, I think is really important, this idea of world building within the club. Um, but I think that trans and gender diverse people have been able to do that. So I feel like this video was um, was something that, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, articulate that, that, that story. Um, similarly with Supertouch, um, now, I guess the story about Supertouch, um, you know, which is with my band, we're all sort of dressed in leather and latex and we're on the middle of this, you know, the Eastern Freeway, which is, I guess, symbolic, I guess, of, of, of the most hostile urban environment, uh, urban environment that, 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 that queer occupation could exist. And here we are on this bridge over the top of all of these cars, like a highly visible space, yet within that, invisibility we're actually hidden in that plain sight yet we're establishing this site of care for each other which I think is very central to what queer and trans people do is that we are forced to create these places of care uh, these places of intimacy uh, within very hostile sites I guess the idea of my album being called Panic Desire is that we do occupy this threshold between the two but this threshold is actually the universe within which we exist and it's an incredibly big space. We have to understand it, well, I understand it, as a very large space rather than this, you know, cutthroat line between, like, that's a binary because I, I can't afford to think of, of space as binary. So there's this idea of community as a site of transing. There's this idea of community as a site of care. Furthermore, I think like the video for uh, for the present, which is um, about resistance. So we also build, I guess, um, you know, we, we build connection through resistance um, and how, I guess, you know, there's like the present sort of talks about, I think, a lot of the political um, backlash that's happened um, against trans people. Um, particularly me being at the coalface of it at Melbourne University. 
uh, and um, yeah, you know, just uh, it's a, it was a real sort of statement against some of the things that had been happening. I think in the media um, around you know the last two years of my PhD. But this was a song that sort of embodied so much, I guess, of rather than the 80,000 word essay, that this was the five minute pop song that, that, that really, really rammed us at home. So this idea of resistance as a site of transing. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of talking about my trauma at the conference on the panel and I'm wondering if anyone's listening because I'd rather just play techno. This occupation of public space, it's sort of like if trans people are always expected to talk about their trauma in public space you know I, I would rather just play techno and have a great time you know if I'm sort of like turning up to the conference it would be really great if I could just maybe just talk about my influences or something which is a question that's afforded to different people so this idea of world building is the way that I, I guess I'm talking about this occupation of public space so queerness is, is also a performative because it is not simply a being, but a doing and um, a doing for and toward the future. Queerness is essentially about the rejection of a here and a now and the existence of a potentiality or concrete possibility for another world. Thanks. Thanks so much, Simona. You speak so generously and I loved that you um, had a little slip there where you did play us some techno. Um, it, your videos have been such a wonderful thing to have playing in, um, in the gallery space. Uh, and, yeah, as you say, your, your music says so much that, um, uh, that you can't necessarily or that not all people would access um, if they're not reading uh, an 80,000-word thesis. Thank you so much. We might um, now move on to Callum Morton. Um, Callum is a Melbourne-based artist, professor of fine art at Monash Art and Design and Architecture and the director of Monash Art Projects. He has been exhibiting nationally and internationally since 1987 and in 2007 Callum was one of three artists representing Australia at the Venice Biennale with his outdoor work Valhalla, which now has a home at Tarawara Museum of Art in Healesville. In 2011, Callum's work was the subject of a retrospective at Heidi Museum of Modern Art, and he has presented major public art commissions in Melbourne, the Netherlands and Turkey. Callum's approach to urbanism and the built environment has been informed in good part by decades of driving, walking and more recently running through urban streets and spaces and thoroughfares. Callum's ongoing digital project, The Empty Shops or Empty Shops, is accessible via his Instagram at Callum Morton Studio. And a slideshow of these images is also on display at Acker. And I believe we'll get a taster of that today too, Callum, in your um, presentation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Miriam. Um, I'm just going to, um, I'll just share it. I'll just play the, the slideshow in the background. So hopefully this is going to work. Uh, is that working for everybody? Can someone say yes? That's perfect, Callum. Thank you. Um, okay, I'm just going to um, read a text I wrote. It's um, from a magazine. Some of the images are coming out um, shortly. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging that this project of um, photographing 1,400 or more than 1,400 empty shops during uh, lockdown, uh, the longest lockdown, took place on the lands of the Bunwarung and Wurundjeri uh, people of the Kulin Nations. And I, I also pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to other First Nations 
friends with us today. Um, so the text is called Voids, and um, I'll just explain that Voids, the idea of the void, I suppose, the whole of the erasure and so on has been a part of my work for a very long time in various, uh, in, in various um, configurations. And so in a way, this project of Empty Shops um, uh, kind of connects back to work that I've been doing for a long time, um, and I just said that, but I used to take photos of, and I have taken photos of empty shops for many years. Um, uh, and it will become apparent when I read the text, how it sort of emerged here. Um, and also, uh, I guess the thing for me is I've always been particularly interested in the, in the kind of confusion or the, not the space between, but the confusion between public and private space. Um, and if, as Hannah Arendt um, talks about in her beautiful uh, introductory essay to Walter Benjamin's collection of essays, Illuminations, talks about the street, imagining the street as a kind of interior and the walls of the building as, you know, walls of a room and the shops are kind of other rooms, um, if you like. But also the idea that, um, you know, the thing that, separates us from the shop, if you like, is the sort of veneer um, or the, the sort of skin of glass. That's the kind of demarks the, the line between um, the two spaces. So, uh, you know, you're public on the street looking inside something that's essentially private, but um, as soon as that glass is dissolved, if you like, it becomes simply another room, if that makes sense. So in the past, I've taken photographs of shop windows using a, a standard SLR, which has a kind of space between the edge of the lens, you know, and the glass of the lens, which creates a kind of refraction. So the, um, the iPhone, um, you know, the smartphone with the lens, that's very flat, enables you to press the, the camera up against the glass and thereby dissolving it. Um, hence sort of how this came about. Anyway, I'll start by reading, I can extemporize a bit more about things, but I'll start by reading the text. Voids. Empty shops are wounds. They pierce the body of the capitalist city, rendering visible its instability and the crisis of small business. Since the evolution of the department store, the mall, the big box store, and more recently e-commerce, commerce, it has been clear that the standalone business in the strip is increasingly precarious. Despite this, Bricks and mortar still dominate retail across the globe. They remain familiar to us, the local shop serving community. We feel, but we feel their absence. While there are strip shops in every city that seem to be perpetually in crisis, during the pandemic, these closures proliferated at an alarming rate, and this collection of over 1,400 photographs documents this escalation. The project began during Melbourne's 77-day lockdown in 2021, and ended when it did. Given that Melbournians have endured more than 250 days in lockdown, the longest period anywhere in the world, the project acted as both a type of lockdown diary and a panacea. As I said, the images were taken by pressing my phone up against the shop window, thereby dissolving the glass's reflective properties and giving the images the appearance that they were taken from inside. I only took photos of shops that had four lease or eviction notices posted on them, and the bulk of these are empty shells with few traces of their former life, bar the skeletal remains of their interior design, the odd hanging rack, lights, 
shelving system, floating counter, wallpaper, painted background, sink or chair. In the shops that abut another, there's always a door leading out back. Sometimes there are piles of things left behind or still to be moved, residual and forlorn objects stripped of their context. There are, also a number of there are also a number of indistinct images in the series where the shop windows were covered by plastic, paper, curtains, timber, and so on, which made it impossible to capture an image of the interior. These were shops that four with four lease signs where the owner or agent understood that the abject image of vacancy described an end when they wanted instead to describe some possible future. So I'll just... Um, Stop for a second there and just talk about the order of the images. So the order, the images sort of are clustered together. Um, as Miriam said, uh, I during lockdown for exercise, I would run. Um, you know, I'm a sort of runner. I'm a very, you know, bad plotting sort of runner, but I do run. And, um, you know, I was just bored of doing the same run every day. And so I decided just one day I live in East St Kilda to go to run down Chapel Street to the river and, and uh, loop, um, loop my way back. And as I was running, I noticed that there were, you know, lots of empty shops. Chapel Street is one of those streets that's always precarious. If you like, like Bridge Road in Richmond, there are a number of them around town that are always kind of challenged um, and have felt the effects of the mall or, or you know, just changing demographics and so on. Um, but there were lots of them. So I think by the time, so I decided to start taking the photographs and by the time I got to the end, I think I had about 60, 60 or 70 photographs of empty shops. So then it started from there that I, every day I'd set out um, to run a different direction. I'd, I'd pick a kind of strip or a cluster of shops that's really just looking at sort of density of shops and I'd kind of run in that direction. Um, and they're sort of, it's conditioned by, you know, the kilometre boundary that was, applied by the state um, during lockdown, you know, I think it was 5k, then 10 and 15. I'm not saying that I followed that, you know, to the letter, but um, but it, I sort of did. And so they're, they're, they're kind of organised in in that way, this kind of endless slideshow. The slideshow, it was made for Instagram, so it was sort of diaristic in that sense. Um, so the kind of swiping of the video uh, mimics the kind of formal nature of of, uh, of Instagram and how they actually appeared. It's not ongoing. It, um, uh, as Miriam said, as I mentioned in the text, it um, it finished the day that um, that lockdown finished. Um, okay, I'll just go back to the text. Every shop that closes has tentacles that reach deep into the heart of our communities. There are the obvious economic and social effects, the livelihoods of the business owners and their employees their families and the supply chains that rely on them functioning to the landlords who similarly might rely on the rent. Less obvious is the symbolic effect that this emptiness has on the character of our streets, on our public spaces that were largely abandoned during the pandemic, save for clusters of homeless people, tradies, and the odd mask queue for coffee at a cafe window. When, when occupied, the shop window is like a vitrine of objects in a museum that, as Walter Benjamin taught us so poetically, animates the recent past and prophesizes a collective future. When empty, time appears absent. Despite the relentless repetition of this archive, the empty shop remains a beautiful image too. Beautiful as a ruin often is. Beautiful precisely because it isn't smooth, rather it, rather it is worn out and melancholic. 
In an odd way, the empty shop image is similar to that other contemporary image of insecurity that proliferates so broadly, the selfie. The selfie too lacks expression and is inherently insecure. Perhaps these voids accumulated here act like spatial selfies, images taken to act as reminders of this moment in time and nothing more. And I suppose for me, the, the, the reason I kind of connected a bit to the idea of the selfie was it was about, you know, recording my image and my body in space as well. You know, and often some of the images you can see sort of me reflected in it, which is something I didn't want, but sometimes it was sort of unavoidable. But that's it for me. Thanks. Thanks, Callum. Um, it's really quite a profound project. It's absolutely compelling. And I think something that we've all really noticed doing our, our walks, but particularly um, with the, the volume of, of shops that have shut down, it's, um, it is the symbolic effect. It's, it's, it's really quite, um, quite profound. Thank you. Um, and apologies for saying ongoing. I understand um, the, the no, time limits of the. I'm not going to be condemned to do it forever. No, no, stunning. They, they are beautiful objects. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. We'll move on now to Huang Tran Nguyen. Thank you. Um, Huang is a conceptual artist most known for site-specific and socially engaged participatory projects, working with multimedia and event-based installations as well as social practice. Nguyen's works focus on diasporic cultural production and engage with the history and social politics of place. His works have been exhibited at Buxton Contemporary, the substation Newport, Footscray Community Arts, and featured in festivals including Due West, Next Wave and Big West. He is currently a doctoral candidate in social practice at the Victorian College of the Arts at the University of Melbourne. Wang's three-part participatory performance uh, project will take place over, we hope, three evenings over the coming months. Um, this week, fingers crossed, on Thursday, January 20, we are gathering, uh, albeit at safe distances, outside Mama Chen's in Footscray. Uh, then on Wednesday, 16th of February, we'll meet together in University Square in Carlton. Uh, and then on Friday 4 March, we'll come together under the Westgate Bridge in Port Melbourne. Um, Huang, thanks so much for talking to us about, um, I guess, the background of this project and then also what we can expect over the next coming performances. Thank you. Thanks, Miriam. Um, uh, I'd like to also start by acknowledging the um, <coughs> uh, uh, original custodians of the Burmurun and Wawurun country. Um, that I'm speaking of. Um, so I'll just say a few words and then I'll start a slideshow when, um, uh, when it's relevant. Um, so that the project was originally staged in 2013, where I was asked to contribute to a local arts festival in Melbourne's West called the Big West Festival. Um, so as, as the area was going through um, gentrification, I, I was wanting to look at the changing nature of work and how that impacted on, on, on the area. Um, and having made previous work um, using the karaoke format, I wanted to look at another form of public performance that had um, thematic resonances with notions of work and music. Um, so that being the, the public protest. Um, so for example, in, in Western cultures like Australia, we often associate protests with labor movements and popular music. Um, so the, the 60s is a really good example where it's, it was a period that saw big social movements that inspired and mobilized popular music of, of the time. So you think Bob Dylan or um, 
Woodstock. Um, and also, I guess, in thinking about karaoke and its own history, which has been traced back to a fishing port in Japan, where at the end of the working day, there was a bar that offered live musicians playing popular tunes for workers to wind down and sing along to. Um, and being Japan, the technology kind of then developed around that to incorporate video and, you know, um, a portable karaoke machine, um, which also played really interesting karaoke music videos. Um, and I guess the, the other thing that um, I thought I might just bring up, given Callum's sort of talking about the void is that one of the interesting things about karaoke is that it's centered around a void because um, the word karaoke means, um, from the Japanese means um, 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 so something missing. Um, I think there's a more eloquent way to say that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, me being part of the Vietnamese diaspora, um, a music track that's missing vocals kind of is interesting for me. So um, anyway, so these two forms of protest and karaoke, they, they both have a dynamic where the participant's role can change between, um, you know, you being an onlooker to being a performer or, 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 or it may not change. You, know, can, you can be active um, or passive or passively active. Um, so in, in karaoke speak, you're part of a scene um, and this scene changes depending on its composition. Um, and for me, growing up, uh, I guess, in a working class suburb in Melbourne's north and now living and working in Melbourne's inner west um, and thinking about work, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in like traditional forms of work what which we might think of as full-time work um, and in the 90s it becoming more casualized and and now in turn becoming more and more precarious um, and how this impacts on our relationships to places like Footscray um, where you know traditional um, industrial manufacturing for um, is being replaced by forms of creative work and industries um, and just as important and is, is how these changes impact on how we think about class and collective identity. Um, so from, from that kind of, you know, uh, I guess these um, thinking around those themes, I devised a series of public events that were situated at sites um, in the West, in a West that's, that have a history that spoke to some of these ideas. Um, so each event consisted of a work-related song menu, so the top 40 songs, um, which was offered to guests uh, to choose and to pre perform to um, as the song lyrics and the backing music was projected onto the facades of these public sites. Um, so I'll just share, I'll start by sharing the song menu from the original um, 2013. Um, so the song menu, um, interestingly, in devising the song menu, what, what, what was interesting for me was that um, a lot of the songs um, came from the 70s and 80s. Um, so, you know, Cindy Lopel, Bruce Springsteen, um, 
even a band called uh, Men at Work. Um, and, and then when you move to the 90s, there starts to become less and less available um, right up until the mid 2010s. So in a sense, um, in Western cultures, at least, we stopped singing about work, um, at least in popular music. Um, uh, so that's the song menu. Um, so the, the three sites I chose, the first being the Cotton Mills Precinct, which is located um, in Footscray, and it's um, a former industrial manufacturing site, which is now home to creative um, practitioners and um, industries. Um, in this one, you see the former Lonely Planet building that um, the Travel Guide Company. Um, so yeah, you, you can see the just the way the events are kind of composed here. Um, the second site was um, at a restaurant called Lento Is Anything in Footscray. Um, it's now closed, but um, so Lento Is Anything is uh, sort of like an experimental hospitality experiment where um, you pay as you feel, and it employed recently arrived um, refugee migrants as well as socially disadvantaged um, communities. Um, the third site was um, the Sunshine uh, Marketplace Shopping Centre, which was the former Sunshine Harvester um, Works site, which um, in the early 20th century was a, quite a substantial um, manufacturing um, uh, company made, that made um, um, farming uh, equipment. And why it's really important to the labour movement in Australia was that um, it treated its workers poorly, but its, its workers organised and won a landmark legal case that helped establish what we now call as the living wage. So um, the living wage is, um, you know, what was deemed um, a fair um, wage for us to, um, uh, an acceptable standard of living. So, um, yeah, so the shopping centre also has a cinema um, complex. And, again, um, you can see the, yeah, the, the, the composition of, of, of each um, event there. Um, so just fast track to now. Um, so for this iteration of the project, I guess the selection of sites and um, song menus was greatly influenced by the social politics of, of the time. And so the um, pandemic times, as well as the kind of reckoning of colonial legacies that um, Australia is going through um, recently in, in, in recent years um, and, and cont continuing. Um, so the, the first site is um, the building that used to be the uh, offices of um, the Australian Natives Association. And despite its name, um, it's actually um, uh, uh, the Australian Natives Association was um, a, a, an association that was formed in the late 19th century that was exclusively um, for white Australian-born members. Um, and its main mission was um, to promote white nationalism. Um, and um, so this, this building in, in Footscray actually um, 
was uh, the, the Footscray office was actually the largest office um, of the ANA in Victoria around the 1930s. So it was quite a significant um, site. And interestingly, opposite this building at the time was um, a Chinese market garden. And um, so the ANA were notorious for campaigning against Chinese labor. Um, things like, um, you know, uh, boycotting Chinese um, made furniture or Chinese Australian made furniture for, you know, either European or Australian or white Australian made furniture. Um, um, and there's even records of uh, the Chinese market opposite this building being um, set on fire suspiciously. Um, so um, that's the first site. The um, second site is the University Square in Carlton, um, which is a part of the you know, uh, Melbourne University precinct. Um, and I guess I think what compelled me to this site is maybe partly um, influenced by my own kind of returning to studies um, recently from a, about like a 20 year absence since uh, finishing my undergraduate degree in the late 1990s. And um, I guess reflecting on what a university is um, in contemporary times. And um, so thinking about traditionally, the university is seeing as a site of collective study, um, but in contemporary times, I, it's, it's got its, you know, it's got lots of tentacles into lots of, you know, activities. And even the student can be seen as, as a worker. Um, and especially during pandemic times, uh, you know, this, this is becoming really more apparent. Um, and interestingly enough, if you see the, this is a previous arrangement of the, the gardens of University Square when it's been sort of interpreted, the, the design of it is interpreted as um, you know, uh, following the, the, the graphic of the Union Jack. So that, that, I thought that was an interesting um, aspect of University Square's history. Um, this, the um, third site is the um, Westgate Park, which sits underneath the Westgate Bridge. And the Westgate Bridge, I guess for, in, for Melbourne's um, social history, it's quite a landmark, um, partly because it's um, during its construction, um, 35 workers died following a collapse of um, part of the section of the bridge. And that accident also helped to um, improve um, workplace safety. Um, but what's interesting is that in recent history, that meaning of the bridge um, sort of became contested, so to speak, because um, it was a site of um, protest by construction workers um, against um, pandemic restrictions. So um, the bridge, um, the, the workers walked uh, across the bridge in protest. And this was following previous day of protesting in front of uh, like a, um, a union office and then walking to the Shrine of Remembrance um, um, in Melbourne. So um, these juxtapositions, these sort of, uh, in a way, um, points of narrative for, for, for that protest was really interesting for me. Um, and so the, 
the song menu for this iteration, um, it's got a lot of different songs. Um, there are um, songs that were from recent um, uh, in the last decade about work. So they're coming back in some way, but they're coming back in a different way. So you've got, you know, people like Britney Spears and um, Lady Gaga singing about work, but in a very different inflection, in a very different sort of tone. Um, and I've also included a song um, by an Australian band um, called Red Gum. Um, they sung about um, uh, the an early 20th century effort but led by a labour movement advocate to establish a new colony um, in Paraguay. Um, this is Paraguay in South America, a new Australian colony um, called New Australia. Um, so, I, yeah, I thought that, that, that was a kind of an interesting narrative. Um, yeah, so that's, that's it for me. Thanks. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was that's so great. I'm so looking forward to um, belting out a couple of those tunes in the coming weeks and months. Um, we've actually had such a fulsome session. I think um, we might just uh, kind of wrap up and, and leave it there. But if, if you all just join me briefly for a moment um, on screen, I'd love to just sort of say a big thank you. Um, that was really rich and rewarding. Um, and I think despite each of your um, practices um, and projects being so distinct, uh, there've been really rich threads um, through today's session. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing about the joys and challenges of working in public space, um, but also the philosophical, theoretical and historical thinking about spaces really come through in each of your practices. And I liked the threads that um, came through from voids to thresholds and, and particularly those intersections of public and private space, I think, are really strong throughout. And, of course, surveillance and documentation and labour and, and really those intersections um, with practices of care uh, in the face of such precarity and on so many different um, fronts. Uh, all of the works in Who's Afraid of Public Space really encourage us to think about our city and see our public spaces in different ways, and I think you've all demonstrated that so beautifully today. I mean, do you have any questions for each other, I guess, before we wrap up? Um, no, amazing. Look, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you you're each today and, and it's been so wonderful to be able to work with you on these projects um, and to see your projects come into fruition over different all the different formats that they're in. Um, our next projects, in addition to, of course, karaoke um, this Thursday from 9 to 11 in Footscray, we also have the third in our series of artist talks on Saturday, the 5th of February. We have John Campbell, Gulit Abdulvasi and Larissa Kosloff joining us at ACCA. Um, this program has been recorded for podcast which you can access via your favorite podcast app or on the ACA website and of course we also have more podcasts for the Who's Afraid of Public Space program available via ACA.melbourne. Thank you all so much again for your time on a Saturday afternoon um, and a, a wonderful evening and day and week to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.